BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. But now, like knowing how some of these coaches are so rogue and people just allow them to do what they want to do and, and treat these kids like, it's disgusting and it really needs to stop. Because it's not fair that, you know, because a kid gets a full ride that he's picked on or because a kid says, you know, I have a cramp and I, I can't do this drill right now that, you know, he's threatened with, well, you're not going to start. Or, you know, that's really disgusting. It's really mm-hmm. disgusting because – the child safety should come first. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. We have a serious show this week, so please buckle up. This week we are speaking to Joanne Atkins Ingram and her attorney, Jill Elaine Green. Joanne Atkins Ingram's son, Braden Bradforth, was a freshman football player at Garden City Community College in Kansas. He died of heat exertion on the practice field last August, and since that time, Joanne Atkins Ingram has been engaged in a long fight for the truth about what happened to Braden and has had to build a social movement of community members and politicians in her native New Jersey to get the facts. We speak to them in a moment. Also, I have some choice words about Kyle Korver and his statement about privilege in the NBA for white athletes. I also have Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards. But first, let's speak to Joanne Atkins Ingram and her attorney, Jill Elaine Green. My condolences for your loss. I mean, how are you? How is your family right now? Uh, We're not good. I mean, we're... suffer through each and every day but you know it's just you don't ever prepare for this so we're just winging it I guess it's a whole lot of therapy for me grief support you know in the support of my family and friends and people that I don't even know so um uh, you couldn't have told me that this was going to be my life so right and to go from me being completely organized to now just so unorganized um, is traumatic within itself. So you have, um, they call it grief brain. 
So I can't, you know, I, I can't really remember things. It's it, like, it's just terrible. My whole life is just terrible. What did Garden City Community College tell you at first in terms of what happened to your son? Nothing. They just, what did they do? They just called you and said that he, he died? I mean, Actually, what, what did no. they say? Um, they said nothing. Uh, <laughs> I know fully what I'm saying. What happened, uh, once Braden passed, um, I guess uh, Garden City, I don't know if it was the hospital. I don't know. Well, the police never did a report, so I don't even know who it was, but someone contacted uh, the township police here where I live, um, Neptune Township in New Jersey. And the police came to my house, and I was at work um, at another job, and through several minutes of conversation they couldn't tell me over the phone so I gave them permission to tell my son so Garden City has yet to tell me anything and this is why we're fighting for answers because it's things of that sort like I don't know who called who I don't know who knew first but I know that the school never called me to say that Braden was even in crisis or let alone that he had died so we found out from the police and Dave, this is Jill Green speaking, Joanne's uh, attorney. Uh, you, you know, not one coach reached out to Joanne since the day that Braden died. Uh, the athletic director at the time, John Green, who is no longer with Garden State Community College, did attend his funeral. But certainly coach Jeff Sims, who is the head coach, not once did he reach out to Joanne to extend his condolences or to talk to her. And that's why we're, you know, in the position that we're in. I mean, the, the college clammed up uh, almost immediately. And that's why Joanne came to me. There were no, she couldn't get any answers from the school. And so she sought my help. Can, can you speak in, in some detail about the stonewalling you've experienced, about what they haven't given you access to, about uh, the ways in which uh, you've been treated by the school in terms of your search for answers? Well, I can I can let Joanne uh, answer that question, and then if you're looking for the legal uh, pers- uh, perspective, I can follow up. So, Joanne, if you want to answer that, uh, from the very beginning, again, like I I don't know what happened to Brayden. I know that I spoke to him earlier in the evening, six forty-five hour time, and he was absolutely fine. And then the next phone call I get was one a.m. telling me that you know, my son had died. And from that moment on, I, nobody was able to give me any answers for anything. So, and every time I requested to speak to somebody, they were always off until Tuesday. So as far as I'm concerned, I had to fight from the very beginning because even the autopsy, I couldn't do anything until the autopsy was completed. Well, every time we were given a deadline, that deadline came and went, and that was like pulling teeth. And then getting the death certificate was like pulling teeth. My son died August 1st. We didn't receive the autopsy until November 29th. Um, and then the death certificate came a few weeks after that. And every time we have even tried to ask, we have gotten no response, legal correspondence, just in general questions, nobody reaching out to me, nobody responding. And when they did, it was, you know, basically, well, we're going to see what happened. And, you know, we may tell you, we may not tell you. 
and they and then they decided not to tell me. So this is still we are just a few steps closer in the in the few answers we did have. We only got when Jill and I took a flight to Kansas. So mm-hmm. the has not released any details surrounding this event. And from a legal perspective, it's been very, very disconcerting. Um, you know, when, as soon as Joanne came to me, we sent a letter to uh, the parties advising that uh, all uh, video footage had to be preserved. Now, seven months later, uh, I receive a letter from the college's attorney advising, you, you know, and I had written to the attorney in subsequent letters saying, you know, we want the video footage. Seven months later, I, I received correspondence from him saying the video footage has been overwritten. It doesn't exist. It's gone. Uh, you know, that's just an example of we've had to deal with from the beginning. The college claims they did an internal investigation, an internal review as they insist upon referring to it. And so we demanded to see the internal review for heaven's sake, you know, here's a grieving mother. She wants to know, nobody can tell her what his last moments were like. Nobody can tell her what led up to that. Nobody will talk to her. So we want to see the internal review. The response we get is, well, when it's finished, you may or may not see the internal review. That's when we flew out to Kansas. We said, the heck with that. We're going. We're going to see for ourselves. But then supposedly the internal review is completed, and the response we get is, no, you can't see it. You know, I mean, it's just what a slap in the face. How could you turn your back? This child was under your watch when he died, how could you turn your back on his mother? It's so unbelievably callous to me. Yeah, Those are just jo- two examples of the stonewalling. Yeah. I mean, jo- Joanne or Jill, do, do either of you have any theories about why Garden City has been just so incredibly cavalier uh, in terms of both their, not just their treatment of Braden, but their treatment of your family in the aftermath of his death? Like, what, why... Why do you think they're they're acting like this? Well, what what well, what are I they trying to hide, and what does this say about them and their program? I don't want to speculate. Uh, I'm not a mind reader. I don't have a crystal ball. I sort I just can't tell you why they've chosen this route. They claim uh, that you know because <clears throat> they received a notice of claim and understand this, Dave. There's no complaint filed. But Kansas law requires that we notify the, the, you know, possible parties involved in this. So we did what we were supposed to do to protect Joanne. Well, they're hiding behind uh, that, you know, the the legal uh, veil of, well, you know, there's potential litigation. So we're not going to say a word, you know, instead of doing the right thing. If you look at University of Maryland and the Jordan McNair uh, death, which is very similar to Braden's situation. There's a lot of parallels. You know, University of Maryland did the right thing in that they, you know, admitted there was uh, negligence on their part. And they did an independent review of Jordan McNair's death and brought in outside sources 
to see what, you know, what had happened, what could be done to prevent, prevent that from happening in the future. I mean, Garden City, you know, they won't even let us see this internal review they did. And, you know, what, what kind of review could it possibly be except self-serving, in my opinion? So, you know, to answer your question, like I said, I mean, I'm not a mind reader, but I, I don't think it's helping their cause to be so tight-lipped. Mm-hmm. Jo- Joanne, what, what was that trip to Kansas like? Uh, what, what did you find out? Well, it was the hardest trip that I've ever had to take in my life. So I, I, I think I saw the place where my son ultimately died. Um, you know, I know he died at the hospital, but I mean, this process started way earlier than him actually getting to the hospital. So, you know, and that was a cold, lonely concrete wall. So I, and I saw where it was such a short distance from the stadium to where he collapsed and he had to cross a major street. So it's a wonder that he didn't get hit by a car prior to this like it's just I don't know it's just I I don't know it was the hardest trip ever because I got to meet a few of the teammates and talking to them you know they cried I cried you know all I had to do was just say my name and who I was and you know they all embraced me and you know it was just it was sad because, you know, one of the teammates was like, you know, all the time, I just think this could have been my mother, you know, this could have been me and this could have been my mother. So, you know, it's hard because at the end of the day, these are still children. I don't care that legally they're 18 or 19, they're legal adults. They're still children that still need protecting. And they, you know, like, I just don't, I don't know. And then coming back, it was hard because I felt the guilt that, you know, I'm taking this, plane ride home and my son never got to do this like he went to school and that was it so I don't know it was just it was hard it was enlightening too because I got to see things what I think through Braden's eyes you know what he described of school the short time that he was there so it was very difficult for the both of us because you know it was and I mean the townspeople were very nice itself but it's just the school itself was just so cold and and I don't know I just mm-hmm. even just thinking about it now when we went in January the end of January just thinking about it now it just brings tears to my eyes because it's just this didn't have to happen so that's right fatal uh, exertional heat stroke from what we've learned uh, from our medical expert is 100% preventable and according to our expert uh, it, it did appear that Braden was certainly showing signs of of heat stroke. Um, one of the things that you know we learned during our trip to Kansas, but also through um, you know speaking to witnesses uh, and the media, was that water was denied during the most grueling extreme practice. Uh, you know, here's a kid who just got off a plane, you know, vastly different altitude, uh, and they you know, he's thrown into this conditioning practice of 36, 50 yard sprints, eight seconds or under. It's humid. The altitude's different. And he was, according to witnesses, struggling terribly uh, during that practice. And, 
reading the coroner's report, we've learned that uh, the history provided to the doctor by the coaches was, well, we had a meeting after this conditioning practice. We all went towards the meeting, but Braden went a different way. And according to our expert, even that would have been a sign that something wasn't right. Uh, no, you know, we, one of our questions is, did anyone try to stop him? Did anyone ask, are you okay, Brayden? Uh, you know, I mean, this is, this is the mystery that we've, we've encountered. And the sad part is, is that now the coach has gone on to, uh, you know, a bigger school. He's now at a D1 school. And my thing is like, does the new school like have, they even looked at his program and how he operates and, are they even concerned that a kid died on his watch? Is he still doing the same thing that he did at Garden City at Southern Missouri? Like, what what is the difference? And I don't even know those answers. So who knows if those kids are in jeopardy of, you know, meeting the same fate as my son, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's another thing. Like, that's one thing that I want out of all of this is that, you know, just say that, you know, what you guys did were wrong. It was wrong. But this is what we're going to change moving forward because this should never happen again. And I mean, this is happening across the nation. So mm -hmm. it's really sad. It, it, it's really sad because there are some things that we just can't control, but this was completely controllable. So can you speak a little bit, Joanne, about the community support you've received in New Jersey and what, what that's meant not only to you, but to your quest for the truth? Well, it means a lot because any time that I say boo, <laughs> people are there willing to support me, which is amazing. It's amazing because some of these people, I know a lot of them and a lot of them I don't even know, but it's because of all of the sharing, the posting and the sharing and just telling our story that people just are like, are you kidding me? Like, this is really going on. And I'm like, yeah, I, you know, everybody is amazed except Kansas. So the support has been unbelievable and it brings tears to my eyes every single time I think about what people are giving up to help me. Like these people are working as soon as they get off, whatever they could do to support us, they give up their evenings. If we're, you know, having a community meeting, they're doing what they can to help me get justice for Braden, but also for their kids and, you know, their grandkids and, you know, their cousins or their parents or anybody could suffer a heat stroke. But it's talking about the signs and being aware that's making the difference. And then with, you know, Congressman Smith and Senator Capal and now Congressman Pallone to have political backing, and they all want change across the nation. So it's not just our small community now they want it they want change for everyone you know and it's it's a humanity issue because heat stroke can happen to anybody but if you act in the very first few minutes that's the most vital so everybody that suffers heat stroke you, you don't have to die from it you know so that's the thing and and this is what my community is helping me to get the word out so you know i i'm i'm thankful i'm grateful any other word that you can come up with, I'm that, you know, through the tears, through, you know, smiling, through the hugs. My community is really behind us. And like I said, I, I can't ask for a better village than what we have. I think also uh, 
the fact that there is this toxic culture among uh, coaches, coaching, uh, conditioning practices that really there has got to be changes. I mean, this is just simply unacceptable how these kids are treated. And, and, you know, this is certainly not the first fatality resulting from a, a non-contact uh, condition during a, a practice such as this. And it's intolerable. It, it's got to change. And as far as I'm concerned, it's an epidemic because mm-hmm. so many parents have reached out to me to say, this has happened to my child. This has happened to my relative. And I mean, these are, I mean, it's, it's not just one demographic. This is D1 schools. This is high school. This is, you know, lacrosse. This is football. This is basketball. It's, it could be anywhere at any time. It does not matter. It's not a racial issue. It's not a social issue. This is just a human issue that this can happen to anybody anywhere. And the sad part is, is that there were so many other coaches and trainers on that field that not one person stepped in to say that my son had had enough. Like he needs to go sit down on the bench or, you know, you need to lighten up or what's the sense of having all these extra coaches and trainers. If nobody has the ability to look and and say, you know what, this kid is doing too much. Mm -hmm. Joanne, have have you thought at all about, what this kind of conditioning, the denial of water, the challenging of the manhood of players in, in, such, a, in such a way, what that says about football and the culture of football, is that something that you've given any thought to? Yes, because prior to this, we were a big football family. So Brayden has played on, you know, he's played under several different coaches for several, you know, several different teams. And this was never a concern of mine him dying of heat stroke because these coaches here and these trainers, they took good care of Braden because they knew Braden. They got to know him. So he's played on teams that he was out of district, you know, for championship teams. And he was the only one from our community to be picked to be on these teams. So he's played under different conditions. And like I said, you know, not, I don't even think I even thought this was a possibility. But now, like, knowing how some of these coaches are so rogue and people just allow them to do what they want to do and and treat these kids like, it's disgusting and it really needs to stop. Because it's not fair that, you know, because a kid gets a full ride that he's picked on or because a kid says, you know, I have a cramp and I I can't do this drill right now that, you know, he's threatened with, well, you're not going to start. Or, you know, that's really disgusting. It's really Mm -hmm. disgusting because – the child's safety should come first before winning, before, you know, how much money they can make. It's, the safety should be first, and it's up to the adult to make sure that these kids are safe. So it's no different when you send your toddler to preschool or you send your kid to elementary school or, or middle school or high school. It's no different than that. You know what I mean? And what's sad is that, you know, it costs money for these kids to go to school and then be treated like this. Are you kidding me? They're adults? Yeah, but then they still send the parents the bills. So what does that say? Mm. Well, what is next for you? I mean, it it seems like litigation um, is what would logically come next. Is, is, Is that the plan? 
Well, that's what everybody else wants to focus on is the litigation, especially Kansas. That's what they are hiding behind. Even though nothing's been filed, they've been hiding behind that. I've never said in any statement anywhere to anybody that I was suing the school. My thing is I need to know what happened to my son. It's not important to anybody else. Maybe it is, maybe it's not, but it's important to me to know what happened to him. I need to know what happened in his last moment. We have, uh, you know, uh, Congressman Chris Smith has been instrumental in helping us make some headway here. Uh, And so he is, uh, trying to arrange a meeting with President Ryan Ruda of Garden City Community College uh, within the next few weeks. So, you know, we're we're hoping that perhaps we can uh, get some information from President Ruda. At, you know, if that meeting actually uh, occurs. But um, you know, in terms of litigation. If we continue to be stonewalled, it's inevitable, right? What else are we going to do? It's the only way we're going to get answers from this school. And, you know, it's funny, Dave, that um, a a journalist from Kansas contacted me after we had our community meeting, which was incredibly successful um, the other day. And he said, well, you know, the college says, how come you never ask them for a sit down before? And, you know. I said, you know, I started laughing. I said, that is the most ludicrous thing. It makes, it, it actually makes me laugh out loud. This school has done nothing but stonewall us, has kept silent from day one, long before I came into the picture. And we're the onus is on us to say, hey, even though you've told us nothing, even though every time we ask you for something, it's no. Even though you've denied us the, the smallest amount of information, the onus is on us to ask to have a sit down with you. Why? So you can slap us in the face again. You know, it was almost in, in, insulting uh, to hear that, if, if in fact it's accurate. Mm. So um, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. But I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, uh, Joanne and Jill, like what people listening to this uh, interview can do to help you in your search for truth and, and justice. What, what can people do to help? Well, we're all over social media. Um, and it's uh, justice, the number four, Braden. So that would be hashtag J-U-S-T-I-C-E, the number four, Braden B, R-A-E-D-E-N. And we just ask people that they keep this conversation going. Talk about it in your household. Talk about it at your job. Talk about it when you're, you're doing sports yourself or when you're out walking trails or things of that sort. Because we have to, it's not just, this is going beyond athletics. I mean, athletics is what brought us here, but this goes beyond beyond that. And that's our goal is to bring awareness to exertional heat stroke. Like this was something that just wasn't talked about. And now we have several, uh, you know, different groups talking about it. And people say, oh, you know what? I was breathing heavy the other day and I was really suffering from host to heat stroke and didn't know it. So, I mean, this is just a conversation that needs to be continuing to be had everywhere. 
but especially, especially when you have kids that are playing sports because kids just want to please these coaches and they do whatever's asked and they're afraid to say, like, I'm in pain or I'm hurting or, you know, I need to drink some water or things of that sort. So we need to be able to know, let the kids know that they are safe when they go out to play these sports. And it's, you know, high school, college. So, you know what I mean? And it's happened on every level, professional football. So, I mean, it's just, you know, your listeners can help us by continuing to uh, have this conversation. And they can always, you know, reach out to any one of us to have a discussion if this is something that they've gone through, you know. So we have strength in numbers. And it takes, you know, people who have gone through the same thing to stand up and say, you know what, we've had enough. Too many people have died from this. Too many children have died from this. Well, you're certainly showing that there is strength in numbers. Uh, Joanne's at, Joanne Atkins, Ingram, Jill Lingreen, thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, Dave. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about an essay that NBA player Kyle Korver dropped at the Players' Tribune that in the sports world, at least, seemed to stop time. Okay, look, last Monday it felt like everyone in the basketball universe actually put down their social media accounts, stopped texting one another, and took 10 minutes to read and ponder the truth bombs that Kyle Korver was throwing down. His piece is called Privileged, and it's remarkable. Korver, who has played in the NBA for 15 seasons, speaks about the experience of being white in the NBA and having, well, the privilege to not have to deal with the institutional racism that affects his teammates and their families. He writes, What I'm realizing is, no matter how passionately I commit to being an ally, no matter how unwavering my support is for NBA and WNBA players of color, I'm still in this conversation from the privileged perspective of opting into it, which of course means that on the flip side, I could just as easily opt out of it. Every day I'm given that choice. I'm granted that privilege based on the color of my skin. Corver also writes about the obligation that white people have to back up their black teammates, co-workers, and neighbors, and to do so with humility. He writes, We have to support leaders who see racial justice as fundamental, as something that's at the heart of nearly every major issue in our country today. And I have to support policies that do the same. I have to do my best to recognize when to get out of the way in order to amplify the voices of marginalized groups that so often get lost. But maybe more than anything, I know that as a white man, I have to hold my fellow white men accountable. Corver goes on to say that this isn't about navel-gazing, it's about struggle. 
He writes, I've come to realize that when we talk about solutions to systemic racism, police reform, workplace diversity, affirmative action, better access to health care, even reparations, it's not about guilt, it's about responsibility. His words echo Ibram X. Kendi, who has written often that it is not enough to be non-racist, one must be anti-racist. It's a remarkable essay, and it's also a challenge. Corver isn't the first white athlete to publicly come out in support of black struggle. Lou Moore's book, We Will Win the Day, the Civil Rights Movement, The Black Athlete and the Quest for Equality, spends a chapter detailing white athletes who back in the day in the 1940s and 50s stood with their black teammates as they challenged Jim Crow and other forms of discrimination. Peter Norman famously stood alongside John Carlos and Tommy Smith on the medal stand at the 1968 Olympics. More recently, in 2016, soccer star Megan Rapinoe knelt in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick, saying, Being a gay American, I know what it means to look at the flag and not have it protect all of your liberties. It's important to have white people stand in support of people of color on this. We don't need to be the leading voice, of course, but standing in support of them is something that's really powerful. It's the least I can do to keep the conversation going. White women athletes stood and kneeled alongside their black teammates in protest after the police killings of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile back in 2016. But in the Black Lives Matter era, there have been precious few white male athletes at the collegiate or professional level who have had much to say about racism, privilege, and their role in the struggle. Corver's essay changes that. It has gone viral and has been praised by LeBron James and Golden State Warriors coach Steve Kerr. NFL player Chris Long, who is from Charlottesville and has had his own political awakening in the aftermath of 2017's white supremacist violence in his city, praised the piece on social media. Corver's last statement, while specifically directed at white players in the NBA, could just as easily apply to white NFL or Major League Baseball athletes. He wrote, People of color, they built this league. They've grown this league. People of color have made this league into what it is today. And I guess I just wanted to say that if you can't find it in your heart to support them now, and I mean actively support them, if the best that you can do for their cause is to passively tolerate it, if that's the standard we are going to hold ourselves to, to blend in and opt out, well, that's not good enough. It's not even close. The challenge to all white athletes has now been posed. Which side will you be on moving forward? Just being non-racist isn't going to cut it. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award this week stand up. goes to the Padaham Football Club of the Northwest Counties Football League. 
Yes, it's a bit of an obscure one, but it's important. They walked off during a match against Congleton Town last October in response to racist insults from members of the crowd directed at Padaham's goalkeeper, Tony Agarriere. The wild part about this, and this is the recent news, is that Padaham was fined 165 pounds for abandoning the match. But Congleton, whose spectators were responsible for the racist abuse, were just fined 160 pounds. Padaham's chairman, Sean Astin, not the Sean Astin who played Rudy or was in Lord of the Rings, he tweeted, where is the justice there? The Burnley Express, which is a newspaper, also reported comments from Padaham's then co-manager, Liam Smith, who said he was flabbergasted by the spineless decision to impose a fine for leaving the pitch in those circumstances. Now, Kick It Out, which is a soccer anti-racism organization, just issued a strong statement supporting players at the grassroots level who take action against racist abuse. They wrote, We are extremely concerned at the continued number of reports coming out of grassroots football, some indicating clubs have been facing fines for standing up to racist abuse received by their players. Football is sending out the wrong signal when bigger fines are given to the victims of abuse rather than the alleged perpetrators. We would support the FA reviewing their rules and sanctions in cases of discrimination. Grassroots footballers across the country are losing patience with a system that is failing to support them. The FA and county FAs affirm they understand the devastating effect racist and discriminatory abuse has on its victims, but we call on them to demonstrate that with decisive action. Good for Padaham and good for any sports team that walks off the pitch in solidarity of a player who's subject to racial abuse. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award Sit your ass down. goes to the Trump administration. And it could always go to the Trump administration for a variety of misdeeds, but on this show we do it when it intersects with the world of sports. And this week it goes to them for overturning a deal between Major League Baseball and the Cuban Baseball Federation that would have allowed Cuban baseball players to sign contracts directly with Major League Baseball organizations. The fact that they overturned this deal is an act of cruelty. It will lead to more human trafficking as baseball players embark on the perilous journey to the United States. It is an outrage and shows that when conservatives who rail against big government when it comes to things like, gee, I don't know, healthcare, don't mind it a lick when it serves their own petty, cruel interests. Well, thanks for everybody for joining us this week. Really appreciate it. For everybody out there listening, if you can go to our uh, iTunes page, if you could go to our Stitcher page, if you could go to any of the podcast apps of choice where our show is listed, if you could leave a rating, write a little something, it makes a huge difference in how these algorithms work. Thank you so much to The Nation Magazine for continuing to sponsor this podcast. For everybody out there listening, you can contact me, Dave Zirin, over Twitter, at Edge of Sports. If you have any ideas for the Just Stand Up or Just Sit Your Ass Down Award, you could always email me, Dave Zirin, at edgeofsports at gmail.com. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.